Good afternoon and welcome to our webinar. My name is Cindy Grumman and I am from the Lewin Group. Thank you very much for joining us today for this webinar. Uh, this is the second webinar in a planned series and this series will continue in the fall and you will be invited to those webinars as well. The session today will be interactive with time at the end for discussion. And all of the content presented today, including a video replay, can be found at the resourcesforintegratedcare.com website. And this link appears on the website or on the slide as well. I want to point out that this webinar is presented in conjunction with Community Catalyst and supported through the Medicare Medicaid Co Coordination Office, or MMCO, at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable item tools based on successful innovations and care models, such as the webinar today. To learn more about the current efforts and resources, please visit resourcesforintegratedcare.com for more details. At this time, I'd like to introduce our moderator, Renee Marcus-Hoden. Renee is the director of the Voices for Better Health program at Community Catalyst, a nonprofit consumer advocacy group based in Boston. In this role, she leads efforts to bring a consumer voice to the design and implementation of the Financial Alignment Initiative and other programs aid, aimed at providing better coordinated, comprehensive, and high-quality care to Medicare and Medicaid enrollees. Renee, we're really pleased and honored to have you today as our moderator. And at this time, I'd like to turn it over to you, Renee. Great. Thank you so much, Cindy. I'm so pleased to be here with all of you today and to know that so many people were able to join us during the height of summer vacation season. Um, we've got a very full uh, set of presentations today. Um, these were developed uh, with colleagues at the American Geriatric Society, the Lewin Group, and the MMCO. Um, but because it's a very rich set of presentations, we're going to jump right in and I'm going to introduce our speakers. Our first speaker is Dr. Robert Schreiber. Dr. Schreiber is my fellow Bostonian on today's webinar. He is a geriatrician and is the medical director of evidence-based programs at the Hebrew Senior Life Department of Medicine. Rob also serves as the medical director of the Healthy Living Center of Excellence and is a clinical instructor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School. Our second speaker will be Lisa Gwyther. Lisa is a longtime social worker and educator, and she joins us from Duke University. At Duke, she's, the, she's an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry and the director of the Alzheimer's Family Support Program for the Center for the Age, Study of Aging and Human Development. And our third speaker today is Dr. Deborah Cherry. Dr. Cherry is our West Coast representative today. She is a clinical psychologist, and she serves as the executive vice president of the Alzheimer's Association, California Southland Chapter in Los Angeles. Next slide, please. Before I hand over the presentation to Dr. Schreiber, our first speaker, I'd like to take a few quick polls to see who we have on today's call. So our first poll, which just came up on your screen, is the following. Which of the following best describes your professional area? Please click on one of the choices, healthcare administration, medicine, nursing, physician assistant, education, social work, advocacy, or if you're not in any of those categories, click on other. And we'll just give you a few seconds to make that choice. 
and do be sure to click Submit the Answer after you've make, made your choice. Okay, let's start to look at the results. It looks like we've got um, a, a very strong representation from social work followed by a very strong representation from the uh, medicine, nursing, and physician assistant category, um, but a good spread across all of them. Let's go to our next poll. Now that we know what professional uh, uh, area you're in, let's talk about what setting you work in. Choices are home care, ambulatory care setting, a community-based organization, a managed care organization, a consumer organization, or again, if none of those fits your setting, then just choose other and hit Submit Answer. We'll give you a few seconds to do that. Okay, and let's take a look at the results. Okay, so we have uh, almost 30% from community-based organizations. We have uh, the, next, the next largest from managed care organizations, and we still have a large group from others, so we'll have to explore that uh, in our follow-up. Okay, next slide, please. I just wanted to give everyone a sense of the outline and agenda for for this call. Um, we've already done the uh, we've already done the uh, the polls. We're going to hear from three speakers: one on preparing the patient and caregivers, then working with families after the diagnosis, and then the Dementia Cal MediConnect project. After that, as Cindy Grumman said, we'll have a Q and A, uh, a survey, and then the post test. Let's go over quickly the learning objectives for the webinar. Um, upon completion of the webinar, participants will be able to identify common reactions to a diagnosis of dementia. They'll be, pre they'll be prepared to assess family needs and provide guidance around the varying roles families may perform as caregivers. And you should be able to display knowledge of teamwork and strategies needed to help patients and families of different backgrounds access resources. Now I'd like to hand things over to Dr. Schreiber to get us started. Rob, take it away. Thank you very much, Renee, and I'm delighted to be here. I think this is a, a great opportunity to have a conversation and advance knowledge in terms of the uh, uh, treatment um, and help that uh, individuals and their families uh, need given this uh, significant uh, medical uh, illness. Um, today, I, I'm a geriatrician, and I'm going to give you um, sort of the view that I use and a lot of my colleagues use working in patient-centered medical homes, and we are part of an accountable care organization. But I think the commonality that you're going to hear is that this is really a team approach and that you need to build your team and the team needs to be rich. Um, I'm going to review uh, today sort of uh, a process and approach that I take, which first starts with confirming the diagnosis, identifying the stage of the disease, um, goals and values of the individual and families and how that gets incorporated into the care processes. Uh, education is going to be a recurrent theme, but you know, from my perspective on the front end as the medical provider, how I build that into not only the assessment but the actual ongoing care. We are going to cover medication use 
and the uh, need for ongoing support and hopefully give you a step-by-step um, -step approach so that this will be you know, something that could be utilized uh, starting immediately. Next slide, please. So the first aspect of um, treating an individual and the family um, in terms of dealing with Alzheimer's disease is one, the importance of confirming the diagnosis. Oftentimes, the diagnosis is not specifically spelled out or clearly understood. And as you all probably know, it's almost impossible to be definitive of the diagnosis of Alzheimer's, but oftentimes there are, the, the diagnosis of dementia is very clear. And what we find is sometimes families are stuck on a word and not seeing the bigger picture of what the actual disease process is. Oftentimes there can be overlap with other types of uh, dementias, and I'm not gonna get into that today. I know that was brought up previously, but I think the importance is to ensure that people understand that they're, what the disease is that they're there for, because oftentimes they are not clear, or they may not understand what it actually is. So then the second piece of uh, confirming the diagnosis is really understanding what does that mean to the individual and family? Where are they in terms of their knowledge? Oftentimes they will get knowledge second and third hand. They'll have read things, but they, you know, really what does, what does this mean to them and where are they in the understanding of this? Um, which gets to the third point is do they understand what it means? And in my experience, Oftentimes that's not the case. People do not really understand what the diagnosis is and what this means, even though they may have the diagnosis. So, um, and we'll talk about the different stages, but I have people who oftentimes have advanced or moderately advanced dementia that really don't understand what their diagnosis is. And then lastly, the importance of education about dementia. Have they had um, any uh, education or understanding not only of the disease process, but you know the ongoing course. And again, in my experience, it's uh, amazing to me how little knowledge patients and or their families or caregivers actually have. Next slide, please. So I just wanna quickly go through the stages of Alzheimer's disease because it is really important as a clinician to understand where people are. And as we all know, there's a progression um, and oftentimes um, people will go at this progression in a whole different uh, time period. And so there really is no definitive um, rate. One individual is very unique. Each phase usually is anywhere from, you know, approximately three years, but it can vary. So in the first early stage, oftentimes we have individuals presenting with antegrade amnesia with rapid rate of forgetting, so they're not able to really remember things moving forward. They oftentimes have difficulty in executive function and impaired judgment or problem solving, so things that they were able to do, complex tasks, different types of accounting, or even parts of their profession, they're not no longer able to do. Oftentimes there will be intrusion areas and anomia um, in terms of not being able to name things or just as they're doing things, different thoughts will intrude into their thinking and oftentimes disrupt their um, concentration and focus so that they get frustrated. 
They oftentimes will have visual spatial difficulties, and these include people's ability to really um, function in space, such as feeling unsafe when driving, having trouble navigating new routes, forgetting where they place things, or having difficulty parking a car. And then mood disorders oftentimes are seen where people are anxious, irritable, just not themselves. So the middle stage, you know, is where we see progressive memory loss. We also see fluent aphasia, and uh, specifically um, uh, with circumlocutions, including semantic paraphrasias and impaired comprehension. Circumlocutions include the use of many words where fewer would, would do, especially in a deliberate attempt to be vague or evasive. Um, semantic paraphasias include confusion of words or the replacement of one word by another real world word, but it's not appropriate. We also see people having difficulty with apraxia or the inability to perform particular purpose Purpose, uh, purposeful actions, um, and then agnosia, such as the loss of ability to recognize objects or faces or voices or places. People can still think and interact and carry on a normal conversation, but they have difficulty with those, those uh, recognition factors. Next slide, please. And then we have the last phase or the late stage of Alzheimer's disease where we see severe memory compromise. And this is a picture of August Dieter, who was the first patient that was described as having Alzheimer's disease by Dr. Alois Alzheimer. Um, and she was 51 years of age at the time she was diagnosed with having a dementia, and she was experiencing significant disorientation and hallucinations. So we see as a result of this, people having severe functional impairment and loss of their activities of daily living. Their speech is limited and they have echolalia, which is oftentimes they will echo um, another's words, even though it's not you know, appropriate. They just, they're an echo chamber. They can have bradykinesia, which is very, very slow movement, or they become rigid, and they have difficulty with their gait. Their gait is um, um, oftentimes impaired. They're not able to move. They seem to be very apprehensive. And lastly, you will oftentimes see behavioral disturbances, which we'll go into at the end. Next slide, please. So now that we've sort of confirmed the diagnosis, we sort of know where people are in terms of the stage, it's really important to understand what are the goals of treatment. And in order to understand the goals of treatment, what matters most to the individual and family has to be addressed. So understanding people's values, um, the individual in particular, what has been important to them, what is important to them, uh, and also understanding the caregiver and family is another important aspect. So we have to focus on those issues, and through that we can understand what we can do to help improve their quality of life and function. Education plays a big part in this um, in terms of what they can do. Um, and also, how do we maintain and possibly improve cognition as well as what are the things that need to be done to manage comorbidities so that the disease will not progress. Comorbidities can cause progression of um, Alzheimer's disease, and so the better we do in managing them, the better the outcome will be. 
The importance of understanding behaviors, um, we'll talk about again, but those, those are important. And then also, how do we work with the interdisciplinary team? Next slide, please. There's going to be a lot of discussion about the education of family and caregiver by my uh, co-presenters. But um, just even from my perspective, up on the, in, the, in the beginning of the clinician's view, oftentimes there's a total lack of education and knowledge um, for the family and caregiver. And that's critically important to have the best possible outcomes. Um, oftentimes there's not a standardized approach. Who's going to actually you know, present the information? What's going to be covered? Um, and so that's really important to develop an approach that every family, every caregiver actually gets education and knowledge of what is their role and what they need to do. Not only in terms of how to help the individual, but what are the things that will be occurring as the disease progresses. In, in, in fact, as a primary care physician, uh, it's really important to work collaborative, collaboratively with an interdisciplinary team that has this expertise. So if you have a practice with a, that has a social worker, which a lot of us don't, but has nursing, it's important that they become expert or you know, better at, um, at dealing with the, not only the family, but the individuals. And in particular, there are um, social workers at the Alzheimer's Association who I work particularly closely with and all the doctors in this practice do so that we can refer families and caregivers so that they're going through a standardized approach and they actually have a standardized format so they deal with not only um, how the family is dealing with this, the financial situations, they talk about advanced directives, potential need for alternative housing, different types of programs, but they go through a standardized format. And then the importance of hooking family and caregivers into ongo ongoing support networks. Next slide, please. So I'm going to talk about two types of medication um, that particularly exist, and these really are the medications to help with um, the management of Alzheimer's disease in terms of functional decline. Uh, we'll talk more about that, but there are two classes, the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, including donepezil, galantamine, and rivastigmine, and then the glutamate pathway modifiers, which really includes one drug called memantine hydrochloride. Next slide, please. So the um, medication in terms of uh, this particular one, the, can we go back? we go back one, one more? There we go. All right, so the first class of drugs are the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. Um, and these are, in fact, the drugs that are oftentimes used in the beginning um, and moderate stages of Alzheimer's disease, but oftentimes will be continued in late stages depending on how individuals uh, do. This is a very busy schematic, but the goal of these drugs are to slow the breakdown of a chemical in the brain, which is very important to memory and learning, called acetylcholine. And so these inhibit the breakdown 
by actually helping prevent the degradation of it, which allows for increased acetylcholine in the neurologic synapses, which allows, hopefully, maintenance of uh, learning and ability to function. Next slide. For people who have moderate um, disease, um, memantine is oftentimes either given individually as a single agent or can be combined with the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. And the way this drug works um, is it helps regulate the abnormal activity of glutamate, which is another chemical in the brain that is important for learning and memory. And specifically, it binds to specific receptors called NMDA receptors and allows for glutamine, which oftentimes um, is excitatory and can actually cause too much of it, can cause problems with memory to actually sort of be toned down and allow for glutamate to work normally across the synapse. And through this mechanism, again, it helps people improve their ability to function. Next slide, please. The issue, however, with medication impact is that there is no evidence that medication slows the underlying disease process in patients with Alzheimer's disease. There is some evidence that one-third of patients see some benefit with functional improvement and or behavior changes, but in terms of the actual disease, these medicines do not uh, prevent progression or slow it down. They just allow individuals, if they do have impact, to improve their functional ability and, and or behaviors. So that's an important thing. So we don't really have a lot of medical options, which makes the other forms of treatment, which we'll be talking about, important, more important at this point. Next slide, please. So specifically, it's important for a primary care provider or for family members or caregivers to help emphasize those things that will promote healthy behaviors. We talked about the control of chronic diseases are very important. If somebody gets ill, it's going to impact their cogn cognitive abilities and functional abilities. Keeping people physically active is very important. People who are physically active are much healthier, happier, and this particularly applies to patients with Alzheimer's disease. Proper nutrition is critically important. Mental stimulation, getting people to do new things um, that they normally don't do, simple things such as dancing or singing, things that will get them to use their brains in different ways are very important. The importance of keeping people's mood um, in a good place and treating those mood disorders are really important. And if you do the above, oftentimes people's moods um, will normally be excellent. So uh, by just taking this holistic approach, um, we can improve mood. It's also important to understand what that individual's values and goals are so that they have a sense of purpose, that they actually are making a difference and that they have a purpose in life. And so we focus on how can we give purpose and meaning to individuals' lives. The importance of socialization cannot be um, you know, um, 
uh, it needs to be emphasized as well, and it's probably the most important thing, is getting people in a social environment and keeping them connected with those things that are most important to them um, will make a difference. And then also sleep hygiene, having good sleep hygiene, um, making certain that they're getting adequate rest, and there oftentimes are sleep disorders that occur with Alzheimer's disease, but it's important to deal with them. Next, please. So the caregiver's role is the next thing um, that I really want to focus on, and we're going to be hearing so much more about this. But just as the uh, geriatrician helping uh, families and individuals, we know that dementia caregiving is associated with high emotional strain, poor physical health outcomes, and increased mort mortality. So it's really important that primary care providers should routinely identify Medicare beneficiaries who are family caregivers as part of their health risk assessment in Medicare's annual wellness visit. You can track the beneficiary's health status and potential risk for caregiving, including physical strain, emotional stress, and depression. And it's important to monitor their health status with visits involving the one they're caring for. So I always check in, do a visual check, and also ask how they're doing. Um, and if they give a hesitation, oftentimes I will try to talk to them offline. Next slide, please. It's important for a primary care physician also to collaborate with community-based organizations. In particular, um, they have important roles. I have given you a number here, the long-term service and supports provided by Area Agencies on Aging, which help individuals stay in their home, the National Association on, of Agencies on Aging. The phone number is 202-872-0888. Um, and there's a website. They provide home supervision, adult daycare, Meals on Wheels, transportation, care management and monitoring. They also support the caregiver and can give environmental supports. There's something called money that follows the person so that even if people are not Medicaid or um, on state um, aid, oftentimes they can get support through these agencies. Next slide, please. Ongoing support of the patient and family is another factor that um, needs to happen. And so there are, we'll be hearing more about this, but I talk to family members about support groups. Um, there are educational programs that the Alzheimer's Association puts on, including um, in Massachusetts, something called Coping with Memory Loss, um, as well, which is for individuals, as well as families, as well as a caregiver support series. There are evidence-based programs, uh, which we can maybe talk more about in the question and answer period, called Powerful Tools for Caregivers that actually help individuals manage, uh, you know, manage uh, their concerns. And then we have the 24-7 hour hotline from the Alzheimer's Association. Again, the number is there. And then the importance of the interdisciplinary team, the IDT team counseling for alternative housing arrangements for people who are progressing that are trying to stay at home, but it's just not working out. What's the least restrictive environment, and how do you work with that? The last thing I should say is that it's also important to give legal and financial support. So we actually have attorneys that we refer people to to help them manage these types of issues. Next slide, please. In terms of ongoing management, it's important to have regular visits. So I schedule people to come back at least every three to four months. The social support by that interdisciplinary team that we stay connected as a unit with the individual. 
We focus on sleep issues. We talk about the caregiver check-in on an ongoing basis, make certain that we identify goals of care and update them, as well as prevent adverse drug reactions. Oftentimes there's medicines that are added. I, we oftentimes ask family members to let us know if a new drug's gonna be started because over-the-counter medicines as well as other medications that may be used for allergies, anxiety, depression, urinary frequency can impact on an individual. We want to avoid hospitals and we want to make certain we get people seen urgently but try to avoid emergency departments because oftentimes they will end up in the hospital. Next slide, please. So I'm not going to go into the treatment of behaviors, but the point here is that there are a lot of behaviors. With dementia, you're going to see behaviors. It's not a matter of when, it's a matter of if. I mean, not a matter of if, it's when it occurs. And in early stages, we're going to see more irritability and anxiety and depression. But in later stages, we oftentimes will have agitation and aggression, as well as physical or verbal outbursts, restlessness and pacing, hallucinations and sleep disorders. We can do a lot of management without using medications. And it's important that if we know these are occurring, that we have strategies. And we, we will be discussing that further. So in summary, next slide, please. In the last slide, it's important the primary care physician, PCP, collaborate with an interdisciplinary team. We need to understand the individual's values and goals. The importance of education, healthy behaviors, and community supports are critical components to effective treatment. Medications will not change the disease trajectory, but they can help support function and behaviors. And again, behaviors need to be uh, expected to be occurring and plans for treatment need to be developed. And uh, lastly, the most important, caregiver support is essential. So with that, I'm done and I'm going to turn the podium over to Lisa. Hi, thanks Rob and thanks to our host for inviting me. So I work with families. I like to start from the perspective of the person. And just to let you know, I'm a social worker and my primary work with families is on the phone, in support groups, and in face-to-face -face consultations. Next slide. Just to point out that Alzheimer's is more than memory, but people with Alzheimer's, like this musician and founder of a famous folk music group, said he wanted to be treated like normal. Alzheimer's wasn't his whole life. He didn't want to be a case, and he wants to be re thought of in his typical identity as one of the ramblers. One of the goals in working with families is helping them understand how they can support the meaningful identity of the person. Next slide. The next slide is a historian uh, who had Alzheimer's for 13 years. And his most important comment was, I want to be part of something. We do wonder how things happen and why. He talked about a partial view, feeling like you're coming in in the middle of a movie and you don't know what happened before or what might happen next. They, we want things to be like they used to and it does hurt. And I think if families understand that, they'll go a long way in helping their relatives deal with the disease. Next slide. I also like to prepare care managers for what they might hear from families. In general, families say there is never enough of me 
or enough of the quality, affordable help I need. And sometimes that has to be acknowledged with the family. Also, families are very put off by cavalier comments about people tell me to take care of myself, but they have no idea how to do self-care. Families also express real regret and sadness about losing their shared identity, particularly older spouses. Older spouses are also very upset sometimes about the person. They, one wife said, I need a Charlie app. He was the guy who did everything. I don't know how to do any, everything. There must be a technical fix. Or a daughter who says, I'm proud to be your caregiver, but it's something I do, not who I am. Next slide. Uh, the four basic assumptions, I think, that are important for all of us to understand as care managers, family care affects all relationships within the family. It is rarely fair or equal. Many families see no choice in providing that care, so they may be reluctant or unprepared, and it will disrupt their lives even if they're well-intentioned. Next slide. What can families expect or what can you tell them? They're probably going to have to organize daily and readapt work schedules. For many families, the hardest part is finding, asking for, and using new help, solving new problems, and the hardest part may be making decisions and living with the consequences of those decisions. I tell people that dealing with relationship changes is expectable that your relationship will change, there'll be imbalances in the normal family give and take. You know, one daughter said that my mom always took care of my kids and took care of me. I'm not sure I can do the same for her. I prepare families for the fact that they will resent people who don't live up to their expectations. That can be doctors, that can be social service agencies, financial help, as well as the person with the illness and there's a lot of uncertainty. Next slide. What must families do? I think we have to be aware of what we're asking families to do in addition to all their other roles. They have to define and negotiate really complex and constantly changing situations. That's the nature of progressive illness. Often they have to perform physically intimate and even medically complex tasks they have to manage their own emotions. They're the ones that have to do all the changing to adapt to behavior and communication changes. They have to modify their expectations of themselves and of others. And all this time, they also have to capitalize on the preserved capacities of the person. Next slide. What makes this so difficult is it's a balancing act for most families. Whose needs? Because rarely do families have only one person in the family who is frail, dependent, or has multiple chronic illnesses at a time. So whose needs are we meeting? There's often competing loyalties and commitments to other roles, like your marriage, your children, someone else who's ill in the family. How long can we provide this level of help? How much help can we provide or buy or afford? And the key question is, how do we evaluate the risk of using or not using that help? 
and the cost-benefit. Next slide. There are key decision points when families will approach care managers, social workers, people on the team. Those usually occur around changes in the person's handling of money, handling alcohol, driving, have dealing with travel. Often families don't even notice how impaired the person is until they go to visit someone else or stay, stay in a relative's strange house to them or handling medicine. And I think families are least prepared for the fact that people who normally handle their own medicines either undertake or overtake medicine or decide that there's some new medicine that they will take a lot of, like vitamins or, or health food medicines that are not always benign. There are changes in safety, particularly if the person is living alone and helped by the family at a distance. Uh, particularly in regard to fraud, neglect, wandering, falls, exploitation, uh, for live-alones, as I talked about. Families come to us with lots of questions about HIPAA, about not having access to the doctor when they need to tell the doctor what's really going on. Families also come to us when they are resistant to recommended changes from care managers in terms of use of services, or moves that the person needs to make. And certainly a key decision point is when there's illness, injury, or a change in the primary family caregiver. Next slide. How can we prepare families? I usually go through a sort of mantra. I remind families that new problems aren't necessarily related to what they did or didn't do. The person is unhappy because he or she is living with unwanted dependency that they don't think they really need. Um, and to remind families that it's easy for other relatives to second guess or criticize from a distance. They're going to have doubts because there's a lot of uncertainty. But I tell families that doing nothing is usually risky. I tell families that choices, options, and lives are different and it's impossible to know what she would have done if your positions were reversed. And I tell people that it's very common for people with dementia to take out their frustration on whoever is there. They're unhappy, they're upset, they're confused. You're there, you must be responsible. Next slide. There are some hazards for families in making decisions and I try and let them know about that. It is very difficult to make solid decisions when you're living with unrelenting serial crises, particularly multiple hospitalizations of someone with dementia, or if they're honoring old promises to always be there for mom or take mom in, and certainly if they're chasing the ghost of who the person was. This is the family who says, well, yes, as soon as dad says he would love to go to an adult day center, we'll be sure and call them. Well, dad is never going to say he wants to go to adult day. Often other relatives have conflicting perceptions or expectations of the family or the person. Families often are reluctant to use services because of control issues, particularly with care managers. And often families just don't have good choices. And all those affect family decision making. Next slide.
So for early stage families, I think they need explanations why he's not himself, why he seems to have lost interest, have a shorter fuse, or he'll never go anywhere and he used to be more social. Why she can still read my reminders, but she doesn't follow the directions. Why he'll go to the bank every day and still not pay his bills. Or why people are complaining around him. Or why it took her an hour to get to the beauty shop on the corner. Or why he can no longer do minor repairs and we're finding that that's costly. So families need you to answer their direct question and relate it to the disease process. Next slide. In moderate dementia, often families need help with rejection or resistance to help. Um, the person who says, I showered this morning when the family tries to gently remind them it's been a week. Um, people get ideas stuck in their head, and so they will constantly go to the store for Kleenex, go to the store for vitamins, check on things, search for things. Uh, what I used to call rummaging and pillaging through the house, looking for lost items. Families need to be prepared for the fact that even if the family's person is angry, he may shadow them into the bathroom, shadow them to the phone, and there's a real disruption of family privacy. There's some disinhibition, and so many people who were normally very careful about their diets will eat only sweets. There are misidentifications, you're not my real husband. There are confabulations, which are not lies. People are filling in gaps in their memory with something that makes sense to them at the time. Often people have delusions or false beliefs, usually the family theft or infidelity. And as Rob pointed out, there are visual spatial changes leading to falls and balance problems. Next slide. The key issues for social workers to, and care managers to deal with are safety issues. And I put financial safety issues ahead of everything because it happens early and it can affect the assets of the family for later care. And so you got to pay attention and find ways to work around a relative who lives alone and decides to pay somebody $1,700 to fix gutters that don't need to be fixed. Uh, they need to pay attention to driving issues. They're great educational materials, I'll point out at the end. Um, they need to pay attention to medication management. Just because mom has a pill keeper doesn't mean she knows how to fill it anymore or that she knows what time of day it is to take the medicine. And I always encourage families to pay attention to over-the-counter and toxin use that may be missed perceived, particularly um, cleaners under the bathroom counter that may be used for the wrong thing or ingested. Um, I always ask about guns, power tools, and kitchen and bathroom safety issues, and there are safety um, charts you can go through or reminders, questions to ask about things that could be a safety issue in the home, uh, but particularly guns and power tools. Uh, and certainly there are safe, there's a safe return medic alert way of identifying people who may wander and become lost in North Carolina and many other states. We have a silver alert program where families can call immediately when someone's missing 
and it's like Amber Alert, and there are billboards, and they find people, so it's worth it. But most families, as part of safety, have to figure out how they're going to monitor the person. That can be low-tech, like a, a bell on a door to let them know the person goes out, or it can be high-tech, like GPS monitoring. Next slide. Some families will ask, well, how long can she stay home alone? And these are some of the questions you might ask a family in evaluating whether she can safely stay alone. To me, the most important thing is the medication management, whether she's going to leave the house at the wrong time and not dressed appropriately. Um, and the last one, available discrete surveillance. Some people really are able to stay safely in an environment where there's a lot of people in and out of the house and in the neighborhood who keep an eye out on them. Next slide. I think as care managers, we have to be aware that it's not just referrals, but what might the family, how might the family resist community help? Often there's stigma associated with using various agencies, um, and urban legends or myths, like um, they steal from you if you use home care. Um, often families are resistant to using community help because of the cost, or because they're preserving assets for their children, or because they're saving for a rainy day and they don't realize it's pouring right now. Um, often it's their denial or poor judgment about how much help the person needs. Sometimes it's because we recommend too many changes to the family at once and they feel they're losing control. Or, and sometimes because it's overwhelming disclosure and assessment that bothers them and they're unwilling to have their privacy in, invaded. Next slide. How you can help is certainly to have family and person-centered information, which will need to be updated as their goals, as Rob pointed out, and priorities change. I think the kindest thing you can do is offer decisional support and acknowledgement that these are hard decisions, that people are imperfect, and that they're dealing with uncertainty. Help them deal with their feelings of failure, that they couldn't fix it for mom like they used to that their grief, that they're losing that part of mom they really miss, even though she's still with them. And sometimes just offering a fresh perspective or appraisal of their options and their adaptation can be very helpful. Next slide. What families need and prefer is reliable continuing source of information, help with symptom management, navigating health and social service system, and a criteria for evaluating quality, cost, and benefit of the services. Next slide. What families ask care managers, and these are the tough questions. I can't take it, not take it personally. Why can't she remember the good stuff? And how long will it be until what the next stage? And helping families negotiate those tough questions is part of a care manager's responsibility. Next slide. 
There are evidence-informed family interventions, as Rob pointed out, like powerful tools. Certainly treating depression and anxiety in the person or the family helps. Increasing pleasant events helps. Um, exercise, mindfulness, stress management, support groups, and respite. Next slide. Pleasant events is a, is a behavioral activation alternative for mild depression, just getting caregivers to acknowledge what they like to do and can do and increase the frequency and duration of the time they do that. Support groups are important because they provide practicable consumer help or a place to share difficult feelings like failure or regret and express disappointment in those who let them down. Next slide. What we know about respite is it's the most preferred, least available, and least affordable, and that timing, dosing, how much, the frequency, intensity, and quality will affect the use and the outcomes. And by the time people need respite, they need a lot of other things. Next slide. I'm going to skip this slide and go to the next slide. In summary, I think we need to make no assumptions. Culture, as Deborah will point out, trumps everything else in what we recommend and how we assess families. I think it's important to offer something to do and more than one option. I think we shouldn't underestimate the power of our help on the telephone, in email, and in by providing hard copy of materials. I think we have to prepare families for the fact that their goals and priorities will change as the disease changes. We have to offer them previews with no commitments, and we have to offer quality services for what they perceive as the suffering of the individual. Next slide. These are some resources. Just to point out that there are a variety of resources for different families. Part of our job is to select what might be most helpful to the person at the time. And the next slide. There are online resources as well, and I've made those available through the website. And now it's my turn, time to turn it over to Deborah Cherry. Deborah, are you on the line? We're not hearing you. Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be with all of you today. I'm here to speak with you a bit about some of the challenges we've encountered in California's efforts to develop more dementia-capable healthcare systems within our state's dual-eligible pilot program, which is called CalMedi Connect. I'll also share with you some of the tools and strategies we're using to overcome these challenges. This work is supported by the U.S. Administration on Aging, its Administration for Community Living, and the California Department of Aging, and they would like you to know that my presentation does not represent official agency policies. Next slide. An estimated 10% of people living with Alzheimer's disease in the United States reside in California, and I tell you this for a sense of scope. 
The state has 1.1 million dual eligibles, and we expect that between 60 and 84,000 dual eligibles in the state have Alzheimer's disease or related dementia. As in many states, this population is very ethnically diverse. It includes many immigrants, people who speak English as a second language. There are many um, members with multiple chronic diseases, and as has been noted frequently, these are some of our sickest and poorest patients. Next slide, please. There's a business case that can be made for improving and better coordinating care for people with dementia within the DUALS pilot. And as we approach California's health plans to work with us, we shared this information with them. As you can see on the chart, people with moderate to severe cognitive impairment cost Medicare three times more than other enrollees. And this is largely driven by hospital stays. They cost Medicaid 19 times more than other Medicare beneficiaries, and this is driven by nursing home stays. We found that health plans involved in the DUALS pilot were very concerned about these costs and about the quality of care they could deliver to this vulnerable population. Overall, the plans were willing to work with the Alzheimer's Association to develop more dementia-capable systems of care. Next slide, please. So let me briefly review for you some of the key components of our effort to improve dementia care, starting with advocacy. Alzheimer's Association staff advocated with the state and the health plans, including going to stakeholder meetings at the state, the county, and the local health plan levels, forming a project steering committee with participation by leadership from our state's aging, public health, and Medicaid departments that regularly meets with our project team, and very importantly, identifying champions at the state and local plan level. These individuals are critical to moving the project forward and identifying key leverage points for improvement of quality. In addition, our project focuses on the care manager as the linchpin for quality dementia care, providing dementia care manager training, which includes an eight-hour in-person training for all care managers, and a 12-hour additional training for dementia care specialists. Both trainings are followed by monthly case conferences with a dementia care specialist. We also, through the project, offer caregiver education and respite, um, support services delivered through the Alzheimer's Association, and technical assistance to help the plans improve their dementia services. For example, recently a plan requested assistance in developing a policy around the provision of respite. How do they know who to give it to? And we want to be their go-to people and serve as a resource as they develop the quality. Next slide, please. As we worked with the health plans, we identified a number of challenges to provision of better quality dementia care. And the very first was that the plans are having a hard time recognizing dementia patients. We know there's evidence that only 50% of people with dementia ever get a formal diagnosis, and only half of these get it documented in their charts. We believe that the numbers may be even higher for the dual eligibles. And let me give you some examples of why that could be the case. In California, we found that health risk assessments used by some plans were not even screening for cognitive impairment, though it was a requirement. In one case, we found a plan using a mental illness screen to meet the state's requirement, and that was obviously not workable. It was difficult 
So the plan is to make contacts with the members for health risk assessments. The members are poor, many move frequently, and some have very limited telephone access. Families of the duals may also be less likely to bring dementia to the attention of a physician. Many groups view dementia as a normal part of aging, nothing to report to a doctor. And poor families who are coping with acculturation, multiple low-paid jobs, inadequate housing, and other con concerns may not be focused on this condition that, again, many see as a normal part of aging. And let me say that this can be further complicated by the fact that if the families are seeing providers who come from the same country of origin, speak the same language, those providers may share the same cultural views of dementia, viewing it perhaps as shameful or as futile to identify. Next slide, please. Our approaches to dealing with this challenge have included helping the plans by offering to review their health risk assessment content. We've also encouraged the plans to adopt a validated screening tool. In California, almost all care management is done by telephone, so we have been training care managers in how to implement the AD8, which is a short um, tool that can be administered by phone to the patient or the caregiver. We're trying to create a triple net for catching these cognitively impaired patients. First, the health risk assessment. Second, through the physicians who are providing annual wellness visits. And third, and the one we're emphasizing most heavily, through the care managers who are being taught to screen people with cognitive impairment or who have alleged cognitive impairment. We're also encouraging the plans to have a follow-up protocol in place if the cognitive screen is positive. Next slide, please. As mentioned by the other presenters, safety issues are a real concern when a person with dementia is not identified. Families really often do not understand the disease. They may not understand how to supervise medications adequately, and they may even rely on the person with dementia to care for the home and for their children. As one example, we had a Latino family from Mexico with a diagnosed grandmother who they relied upon to take the kids to school and administer her own meds during the day because everyone else who was an adult was working. Medication mistakes had been made. The children weren't being picked up at school. And that was when they began to see that this was not an optimal situation. They required some disease education. And that's something the care manager can provide. Next slide, please. The plans also face real challenges to identifying and engaging a family caregiver or caregivers. You know, caregivers are the backbone of our long-term care support system. 80% of community-based care is provided by families. And if the families lack disease education and support, they'll mismanage care and may burn out. This can result in, per in premature nursing home placement or in ER visits. Medical organizations may not be prepared to identify and engage family caregivers, which can result in poor management of comorbid conditions, apparent noncompliance with follow-up directions, poor medication management, poor management of challenging behavioral symptoms, and then resultant ER, hospital, or nursing home um, use. Next slide, please. To make the situation a bit more complex, because the duals population is very culturally diverse, family caregiving responsibilities may be organized differently than in the mainstream population. Caregiving may be less likely to be a dyadic phenomenon 
There can be multiple caregivers who take on different tasks, and extended family living arrangements are more common. For one example, a Mexican-American family with one daughter who provides all the at-home care, another daughter who goes to all the medical appointments. There was an assumption by, that health care decisions could be made by the daughter who came into the office. But in this family, it was the eldest son who was the decision maker. No decisions could be made without him. So the decision maker is not always evident, and sometimes dementia is so stigmatized in certain families that they will hide the condition and the caregiver will not self-identify. Um, an example is an Asian family we encountered that was in denial until the grandmother's disease could no longer be hidden. First, she left the stove on at her daughter's home, causing a fire and partially burning down the home. Then she moved in with her son's family, where she walked away in her bedroom slippers and was found 10 miles away, dehydrated, delirious, but otherwise unharmed. No one mentioned no one in this family mentioned her dementia, either sibling to sibling or to the physician, until it resulted in this crisis. Next slide, please. Through our program, we are training care managers at the plans to identify the caregiver or caregivers, document them in the records when possible, because that is also a challenge, and complete a caregiver assessment tool. These tools are available on our website as noted on the slide. Once problem areas are identified through the screening tools, the dementia care managers at the plans are provided with standardized care plans. We have developed these um, with, derived these from the ACCESS project, which is a randomized controlled study that demonstrated the effectiveness of dementia care management in improving care processes and outcomes. The standardized care plans make suggestions for further assessment, for follow-up within the medical system, community-based organizations, and they also reference materials that can be shared with the family to help them provide better care. Those, again, are on our website. Our large, next slide, please. A larger role of the care manager is to develop a partnership with the family caregiver, providing them with education about the disease, about self-care, and connecting them with community resources that are low cost or no cost. Some of the education that we have been giving to the care managers, educational materials, have been plain language, lower literacy um, fact sheets um, and educational programs. The fact sheets focus on common symptoms and safety issues. Thus far, six have been completed and an additional 10 are in the works. We've tried to keep the fact sheets at or below sixth grade reading level, and we're creating them in English, Spanish, and eventually in Chinese. These are documents that can be sent home with the family. And once again, they are available on our website. Can we move to the next slide, please? This is a, a sample of one of the fact sheets on keeping the home safe. Um, they look at each of these documents, looks at why certain challenges occur, what the family can do to avoid or manage them. And if we switch to the next slide, you can see that we have one on helping the person with Alzheimer's disease take their medication appropriately. And the next slide, um, we have one on bathing. As I said, we have six in, currently available on our website in English and Spanish with more in development and eventual production in, Jap in Chinese. Next slide, please. 
In California's Dementia CalMedi Connect project, caregivers have been hard to identify and bring into workshops. We hope this will improve as we continue to train care managers and rely on these professionals to make referrals to caregiver education programs offered by the Alzheimer's Association and other community-based organizations. We've had a better success reaching out to caregivers through PACE programs and community-based managed long-term care services, such as adult day health care centers. You may want to consider training health educators at the plans to deliver dementia education. Most Alzheimer's Association chapters have speakers bureaus that can train people in delivering simple programs. They also want to consider setting up a referral system to community-based organizations for education. The Alzheimer's Association um, and our project set up an ALS Direct Connect electronic or fax referral so that the family's permission is given to come to the to be referred to the association and we can make that call to them. It's very challenging to find plain, plain language educational materials. We use evidence-based programs such as the Savvy Caregiver, but we are working with the original author, um, Ken, Kenneth Hepburn, to convert Savvy into a lower literacy tool called Savvy Express. And we have one already developed, a version in Spanish called Cuidando con Respeto, but very challenging um, to find these tools. Next slide, please. Our model stresses the value of developing partnerships between the health plans and community-based organizations that provide dementia care. But sometimes there are challenges to making this happen. Um, there are cultural differences between the partners where managed care organizations may expect timeliness and feedback. Community-based organizations may not be HIPAA compliant or have the capacity for a large quantity of referrals. The first health plan that made a systematic set of referrals to our Alzheimer's Association chapter for all their patients overwhelmed our care consultants and led to a one-week wait. If managed care organizations find the work of community-based organizations helpful, they may need to start paying for these services. On our website, you'll find a manual called Establishing Partnerships and describes how to create a partnership between a managed care organization and a community-based organization. It may be helpful to you. Next slide, please. There are benefits to the plans and to patients with dementia when plans effectively partner with community-based organizations like the Alzheimer's Association. These are, on the slide, some of the services you can access through, the care, through an Alzheimer's chapter, and they include, across the country, support groups, early stage programs for those who have just been diagnosed and are early in the disease, online and face-to-face -face education, care consultants who develop a care plan, um, provide support, connect the person to community resources. The 24-7 helpline number is provided here, and the Alzheimer's Association Medical Alert plus Safe Return Bracelet. You also want to consider partnerships with the triple A's. Can you pass to the next slide, please? So once again, the key, um, a key component of our project has been care manager training. And this slide gives you an initial report of six months um, after our training. What do care managers say that they are doing differently? 
And they say, if you look at the red bar, and the red bar is pre-training, I'm sorry, the dark blue bar are pre-training practices, and the light blue bar is post-training practices, what you see is that there's an increase in encouragement to give, to um, tell the family to seek a formal diagnosis. There's usually, um, the care managers are now um, determining whether an informal caregiver is available. They are involving that informal caregiver in the care planning process, an increase from 63 to 92% of that initial group of care managers said they're doing that. We usually refer the, patient, the member to available home and community-based services, an increase from 67 to 92%. I usually refer the caregiver to available home and community-based services. That went up dramatically from 55% to 85%, and I usually refer them or their informal caregiver to the Alzheimer's Association. Again, a big increase from 53 to 92% say they are doing that in this initial group. We hope these results will be sustained as we gather data from a larger pool of care managers. Statewide thus far, over 250 care managers have associated with eight health plans have completed the eight-hour training program, and there is a demand that has made it um, possible for some health plans to come to us and actually offer to pay us for this training. It's terrific. Next slide, please. So when creating a dementia-capable system of care, at least in the CalMedi Connect project, this is what we are trying to do. We are trying to assure that the health risk assessments and other assessments used include a cognitive screen and identification of family caregivers. We're encouraging adoption of a validated screening tool while we teach AD8. It could be another tool that, they, um, that the plan chooses to um, teach. We are encouraging the development of a protocol for diagnosis so that if the plan individual with cognitive impairment is identified, they um, actually have it documented um, in their chart and they get, I'm sorry, when the, when the individual has a positive cognitive screen, the documentation um, happens and they are referred for a di full diagnostic workup and then this, when they complete their diagnosis, it is documented in their e-medical record. We're asking the plans to be able to identify informal or family caregivers, um, to adopt caregiver assessment tools through their care managers using standardized care plans to help these families um, cope with the disease, understand the disease, connect with resources. And we're asking the plans to integrate caregiver education and support for the families and the, the patients and the caregivers. We are strongly encouraging partnerships with community-based organizations, in particular adoption of ALS Direct Connect, a fax referral that is also sent via e-referral. And on the final slide, you'll see my wonderful team, including my co-director, Laura Connolly, project manager, Jennifer Schlesinger, and project evaluator, Brooke Hollister. And now I'd like to turn the webinar back to Renee.
Thanks so much, Deborah. That was a wonderful presentation on the Dementia Cal MediConnect project um, in California and also on creating dementia-capable systems of care. I also wanted to say thank you to both Rob and to Lisa for your really informative presentations on preparing and working with patients and family caregivers um, after the diagnosis. I want to begin with a few questions that came in, and I want to direct the first two questions to Rob. And then we have a question for Lisa and a question for Deb. So, Rob, the first question is, how many years do the medications used to slow the progression of Alzheimer's have a therapeutic impact? So, so thanks a lot for that question. Um, so just to, again, in terms of therapeutic impact, we're talking about people's ability to maintain their function and hopefully there may be some evidence of some behavioral improvement. And it's variable for individuals. Um, there are people that seem to really um, do well on a medication and, you know, we just maintain people on that because they seem to, you know, be progressing um, slower than what we would expect. Um, and then there are others that, you know, we put them on medicine and it doesn't seem to be making much of a difference. And so it's really important to do some type of standardized assessment on where people are at. And there are a lot of variables that can impact people's functional abilities. We talked about healthy lifestyle behaviors, a lot of, you know, caregiver stress. So you have to be, you have to be a holistic, uh, have a holistic approach. But in general, um, oftentimes with people with advanced dementia, um, we do not continue medications. We will oftentimes stop them. Um, and for people who are rapidly progressing where it does not appear the medications, you know, making a difference, we oftentimes will give it a trial for several months. And then if it's not working, oftentimes we'll back off on it because oftentimes these people have multiple other medications and you can end up with drug-drug interactions. So I think it's really, um, it's a question to continually to ask. Um, there is no fast and tried rule. It's um, trial and error. You know, there is some concern that if you take somebody off that they may rapidly decline. Um, there have been, you know, case reports of that. But in general, um, you know, it's a matter of individually looking at the person and then, you know, uh, assess assessing where they're at. Thank you very much. This next question is for Lisa. Lisa, can you elaborate on how to provide long-distance support to family caregivers that live afar? Uh, there are a number of ways to do that. Sometimes I try and share the same information long-distance um, that I share with the family members who are here. I can do that by phone. I have, in many cases, done conference calls with family members in two or three locations. Uh, I can send written information or emailed information or refer them to websites. Um, and then I also encourage long-distance family members to get involved with support groups wherever they live, Alzheimer's Association or otherwise, because they will find in those groups many people who have similar difficulties living at a distance, feeling guilty and wanting to be there but not knowing how to support. Um, and then I try and teach families how to support the people who are on the front lines by offering to do things that they can outsource, like handling the money or making phone calls or 
looking up information or calling the person with dementia regularly. All of those things can help a, a local family member. Thank you, Lisa. I want to do a follow-on question that sort of dovetails nicely with that question in your response. And this is the question I have heard several times about the need to share info across the continuum of care, yet no real method of bypassing the HIPAA requirements when there is no one, spe no one specified caregiver. Can you discuss how an individual can accomplish this communication given the HIPAA barrier? That's really tricky um, because you have to respect the privacy of the individual and often the person with dementia will refuse to have a family member in the room with them with a physician or will refuse for uh, information to be transferred. Uh, what I usually recommend to families is that they try and work it out for themselves um, and talk with each other about what they've heard from the healthcare professionals, try and get on a sort of level playing field about what they've heard or what they've been told. But um, it can be incredibly tricky. Um, if somebody is resisting or if someone can't be there or if the physician doesn't understand that there are these multiple caregivers in many families or they may spend hours talking to the wrong person, as Deborah pointed out, who's not the decision maker. Um, so I think, you know, what I urge families in the very beginning is to get powers of attorney for healthcare established early and to use those effectively in getting releases of information. Thank you very much, Lisa. That was helpful. Deborah, I want to turn the next question over to you. The individual wrote in, our plan serves many dual eligibles from diverse communities who have dementia or Alzheimer's disease. You mentioned Spanish language fact sheets, which sound quite helpful. Do you have other specific advice for working with culturally diverse members and their families? So, you know, it is really hard in a one-minute answer to respond to a question like that. Each um, culture is very different. Um, and within a family, there is not only culture, but there is acculturation. So you have parts, and you may have generations that are very Americanized and others who are very traditional. And you may also have um, variation in um, socioeconomic status and in literacy level. So I think, um, in general, a more person and family-centered approach um, is a good one to take. You have to see where the family is at. Try to get a sense, um, as Rob said earlier, of their personal, their family values. What do they want to accomplish in the dementia care? And then support them and also educate them as you go. Thank you. That is very helpful. We have a number of questions coming in that are very specific about Alzheimer's disease, like, for example, diagnosis and blood tests. And what we would recommend, we had a webinar last week that touched on some of the diagnostic issues, and I would encourage you to go to the resourcesforintegratedcare.com um, to get some of those. And, and there's a video, and there'll be fact sheets available about some of the basics of diagnostics. But, Rob, I want to ask another question. Um, 
an individual wrote in, my grandfather had Alzheimer's disease and would target my grandmother for his aggression. Is this targeting aggression common in this disease? So the answer is yes. Um, I think um, I think it was Lisa who mentioned the fact that usually it's the person who's most around the individual oftentimes becomes the target. Um, and especially if it's somebody, you know, it's your spouse who's um, the one primarily responsible, uh, the primary caregiver. So it, there, this does occur, and that's, um, I think, in terms of what Lisa and Deborah had mentioned, you know, who's the caregiving network and how can you diffuse that? You know, what can you do behaviorally? But oftentimes individuals that are right in the front line of fire, so to speak, um, need significant support. And oftentimes those that support includes medication treatment. Um, but th we see that very, very commonly. And I would advise uh, that individual to, to seek out support through the Alzheimer's Association to talk to the doctor, um, but really um, be proactive with that. Deborah, a question came in directed at you. Um, you had a discussion about the AD8. Mm-hmm. What are your tools? Is that available without a license? For example, is it an open access? It option? is. It is currently available um, without a license. We provided a reference on the slide um, to the original article on it, and I believe it also appears on our alz.org backslash. SoCal website. In fact, that was one of the reasons we picked the AD8. There were um, some other validated tools, but we needed one that was um, available for use without a licensing fee, um, available for use by telephone, and one that had been translated at least into Spanish, which um, is true for the AD8, maybe not optimally. It's because um, it's Spanish from Spain, but it was one of the best um, options we could find for telephone care management assessment. Thank you. I want to be mindful of time. And Lisa, I want to do one final question to you. Um, you know, telehealth, we, we hear a lot of people talk about telehealth. Do you have uh, much experience with that? Are you finding benefits from the telehealth technology to keep in contact with the caregivers and the patients to make sure everybody is on track and safe? Uh, I don't have much experience, so I can't be an expert. I'm very aware of it. I think it will eventually be helpful. But I think what we forget is that people with Alzheimer's disease may not adapt well to new technologies. It may be scary, and it may they really need human intervention sometimes, and they need the human touch. And so trying to do things um, via Skype or via, you know, some telehealth thing can pose a problem. I have found it very helpful to use old-fashioned technologies with families and with people with Alzheimer's disease. Some of them respond real well to just the old-fashioned telephone. Thank you very much, Lisa. I want to be respectful of time. At this moment, I would like to thank all of our speakers um, for a really interesting, important, and thoughtful discussion. All of the information will be posted on the website. For more information about this webinar series and other resources, including videos and podcasts, please visit resourcesforintegratedcare.com and follow us on Twitter 
at integrate underscore care.